This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And in this episode, number 358, we have come to realize that, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out on the sun, they slave away. While we're devoting full time to floating under the seas of Adari. Uh, and joining us for this conversation, you'll notice that Tracy is not with us. She caught a bit of the COVID. And so we're letting her focus on, on resting and healing. So instead, I have gotten quite a, a school of colorful swimmers to join us. First up, we're going to dive right in. It's Mr. The Basics of the Game himself, the TikTok Starfish. Welcome back, Jeremiah McCoy. <laughs> Uh, I would like to write complaints about the puns and the punning in I this I worked episode. really hard on this intro. <laughs> I, when, when you got on to the, to the, to the, the call, uh, Jeremiah, I was in the middle of scripting, but most of the previous 20 minutes was coming up with these intros. So, <laughs> so what I'm hearing is I should have interrupted you more. I mean, I was already done with that part. <laughs> Uh, next on our fishing line, we have a member of the Tome Show family who also does some game design himself. He runs so many games, he must have eight arms. It's the octopus of the episode, The Triumphant Return of Ishmael Alvarez. Good to be here. See, straight and to the point there, Jeremiah. That's how you do it. Professionalism. <laughs> Look. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one job on this boat, and it's to give you grief. (laughs) Well, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) Finally, we have a whale of a guest with us. He writes for Gnome Stew and more. Uh, He's the only person I know who's smart enough to open Davy Jones's locker. Uh, Coming up for air, it's Jared Rasher. I feel like we're already floundering. (laughs) Ooh. I'm very pleased to have somebody join in. I knew getting you on was quite a catch. (laughs) That's how you get them hooked. That is how we get them hooked. You know, I had to look up the lyrics to uh, uh, Little Mermaid songs to write that intro. (laughs) You didn't have them memorized? Oh, no. (laughs) I've only seen that movie once. (laughs) All right, so... Today we are talking about Under the Seas of Odari, written by Sean Ellsworth and published by Tribality. It's sort of a sequel setting book uh, and sort of its own thing. I think we'll kind of get into that later on uh, to a previously published book called Seas of Odari. Uh, There is a few things to point out, I think, uh, to be fair to our our listeners. Uh, One of the designers of this book is Brandis Stoddard. Yes, that Brandis Stoddard. <laughs> uh, he hosts Edition Wars on this very podcast feed. He's a regular on other shows in the feed. He's a generally nice guy uh, that isn't just a friend of the show, but is also, I think, a, a personal friend to several of us on this panel. Um, so 
I guess bear that in mind uh, <laughs> as you listen to our review of the book um, uh, or our discussion of the book anyway. Uh, it's also likewise worth noting that Brandis himself provided review copies of the book to the panel as well. Uh, although I think at least one or two of y'all might have backed it on the Kickstarter. and, and Yeah, I, I backed it on the Kickstarter. Same. I've, yeah. I've got the physical copy. Yeah. Really. I'm a bad friend, so I didn't. <laughs> you're fired yeah <laughs> so uh let's let's talk about under the seas of adari first of all um i want to ask just so we get a sense of where people are coming from what are what's everyone's previous experience with the other book seas of adari um i read it and reviewed it and uh <laughs> you can find that review at uh at what do I know? Uh, oh. No, that one's at what do I know? Okay. Jr.com. But but the under the seas review that you did is at Gnomestiff. <laughs> it is. <Okay. laughs> do they do you link to each other so at least people can find them both? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I uh, back the previous Kickstarter. Uh, uh, I actually been uh, following Tribality for a while before they published anything. Um, Mainly because I knew Brandis and he was involved with them, and I was like, okay, let's. But oh, pretty much everybody that they got to produce stuff, uh, what was was good at their job. So I, I was interested when they they came out with it. So I I had already backed the previous Kickstarter, so I was going to back this one. And I've definitely talked about the previous one on my TikToks and uh, and and such in the past. Okay. Uh, and ish. Um, judging from when I was going back through my emails uh, for this, uh, I was on the previous one for the season of our for Dari right here uh, on this show. Um, and in in both cases, the games that I was running, uh, it was like, oh man, I wish that this book had come out like two years ago because I would have used the heck out of it. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing for this, but I'll get into that with the review. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty well acquainted with the. Uh, now both the previous book and the current one. So we've all read both books. Um, have, have any of us played in the setting? I tried to get a group together for it, but it uh -huh. didn't, it kind of fell apart, but that was also um, in the midst of uh, COVID times when I was just getting up to speed, trying to figure out how to do all of my online gaming. So I attempted. I've also um, I make uh, campaign standards whenever I start a new game, and a lot of the mechanical elements in the game I put in there as, "Hey, if you want to use these, these are legal." Um, the only issue that I've had with people taking them is that when we go through roll twenty, it's not on there yet, so it hasn't shown up as an option. So it's easier for people to take some other things, but I'm more than willing to do the work of, you know, patching in a feed or two or, you know, a subclass if they really wanted to take it. But it's been on all of my, there's been several options from these that I put in my uh, campaign standards for people to use in my campaigns. Okay. I tend to not be dictatorial when I'm putting together a game. So I like to put together like, here's a bunch of options if people want to play and, I've put it forward a few times, but uh, I haven't had anyone jump for it. I may actually like put it uh, um, I've started putting together doing paid DMing, and I may uh, may put together something using it on the paid DMing and see if people bite. 
As for me, um, I'll generally just tend to kind of run same campaigns. Uh, I have not used Vodari as a setting, uh, but generally speaking, like there's a lot in this book and the previous one that I have and will use uh, because I do a lot of like seafaring campaigns where once upon a time I used to think, oh man, sea voyage campaigns are boring. There's nothing to do. You're just sitting on a boat all day. But uh, this has really changed my mind. Yeah, no, I haven't played in the setting either. I remember when the first book came out, I'm like, oh, this is really well written. It, the things that they've included in it that, that makes it unique, I think, are incredibly well done. I'm just kind of not in a place where I care to do a seafaring, swashbuckling sort of campaign. That's just not where my my narrative juices are flowing at the moment, um, which, you know, is fair. Um, so I never, I never played in the setting. I did steal some of the mechanics here and there. Uh, I had some, I had a character, some characters who wanted to bring in some firearms to their characters or whatever. And I'm like, well, I've got a bunch of different options and, and official sources and whatever to pull firearms from. But really the ones I liked the most were in Caesar Vidari. So I, 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 I pulled some, some mechanical bits here and there and used it. Um, but I haven't played in the setting. Uh, I will say uh, because I've played in Brandis's home games, he has people playing in those games using some of the mechanical stuff that comes out of these books. The barbarian, uh, the, the sort of demon-flavored barbarian, one of, the, uh, one of the players plays one of those, and some of the other stuff makes it in there as well. So I've, I've at least played with some of the stuff. It's Okay, so, so I think that gives us at least a little bit of... Uh of a thought of where people are coming from in their experience to, in order to start talking then about, um, does this setting under the Caesar Vodari really, I mean, obviously it is, it is playing off of the previous title, which was Caesar Vodari. Uh, it is a, it is basically Caesar Vodari is sort of a, a seafaring swashbuckling setting. Um, under the Caesar Vodari is all of the stuff that it's basically a setting all on its own of what happens underwater. If you wanted to do an underwater campaign on the same world. Uh, and then there's some touchstones as to where and when they overlap. Um, does that description sound appropriate? Oh yeah, definitely. So, so it yeah. is in, in, it is in some ways a sequel book, but at the same time, I wanted to address the question of, does this book, do you think, stand alone as a setting? If I wasn't, if I just wanted to play an underwater campaign under the Caesar Vidari, and I don't want to buy Caesar Vidari, can I pick up this book and do it, or do I need to know stuff from the other book? I mean, they repeat a lot of the um, the world information when it comes to the big picture things, like, for example, the gods' war and how the continent got shattered. So all of that is repeated in this book. Um, and honestly, if you wanted to use this as the undersea for another, another world and not necessarily use the same pantheon, you could do that too. Um, there's a few places in here where they'll mention, like, there's like some, uh, undersea kingdoms that also have, uh, island trade outposts, which actually kind of like lets you mix and match the two sides of the setting, but that would be just as easy to stick in, you know, off, off of the, uh, coast of you know somewhere around Lantern in the forgotten realms or something like that as it would be to specifically reference the nations where people sail to that 
I am I'm kind of weird because on one hand I do know that you you want to market uh, a setting so people can use it broadly, but I also really want settings to be the setting that it is itself and not have to be too generic. And I I think it walks a pretty good line for that. Yeah, and I think that that's that you're right. That's a careful line. On one hand, the best settings are the ones that know the stories they're trying to tell, and they are built to tell those stories. Uh, but at the uh, same well, time, I also get that like not everybody wants to tell that story, and then how do you sell the book to them? You know. So. Uh, as to the do you need the other book? The other thing that happens here is they have recreated some of the classes and uh, subclasses that are in the other book, but they've changed them so that they fit into the undersea yeah. theme better. Uh, they are mechanically almost identical. It's just like the gunslinger doesn't fire a flintlock gun. He fires a spear gun. Right. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Which actually uh, spoke to me for completely other reasons. Um, one time years ago, I, I wrote uh, for NaNoWriMo. I did, I did a, a little, novel at whatever it is um and i set it in a setting that had some old west fantasy old west flavor and so i used crossbows instead of six shooters or whatever mm -hmm. uh and and i saw this gunslinger i'm like oh uh, now i could steal this and turn it into crossbows instead of instead of spear guns and it still works you know and, and now i can play that setting i i don't know if we're gonna get you know, into this, you know, part of this later on, but since we're talking about it, the, the, um, spear gunner, uh, subclass for the gunslinger. The first thing I thought when I was reading it is this is a really good, like Hawkeye slash green arrow type character, because you get a bunch of different tricks that your spear gun does on top of, you know, shooting a sharp pointy stick into people. Right. <laughs> the, the Kickstarter is not still active. Is it? It's, it's fulfilled uh, at this point, so it's done. Yeah, yeah, it's fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, I also, you know, again on that issue of if you bought this, would you need to buy the other book? This book also has an entire section about running undersea adventures and what mm. the elements that you will, you know, need to address. Every environmental hazards, how traps work, movement, everything. So, like, it's it, it, it's definitely aimed at being a book that you could get on by itself and, and be fine. I mean, obviously, need D&D. &D. Uh, <laughs> but other than that... Or, you know, uh, what, what, C7, D20, or, or Tales of the Valiant, or something <laughs> that is reasonably similar to uh, 5e. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or one of its many iterations. <laughs> it, it is, it's definitely written for 5e, but of course yes. there are many variants of 5e these days um, that are intended to be compatible with all of your existing 5e products, so... <laughs> Um, I had made a note while going over all of this that um, with all of the subclasses that are in there and some of the kind of rules, inclusions, and whatnot, you could have an entire game that was just the player's handbook and this book, I think. Uh, they went um, like the extra mile, uh, or fathom, if you will, to uh, make sure that like you had everything you, that you need up to and including uh, doing the spear gun feet that then replaced and, and kind of uh, 
took the place of the crossbow expert feat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, that, that's another thing that I noticed in this is I have seen a lot of setting books that have subclasses in them that are themed to the, you know, to what the setting is. This one has something for like every class and multiple things for some classes. This isn't just a, yeah, here's three or four aquatic themed subclasses that make sense here. It, right. They actually went deep into every one of the classes and came up with some options for this. They did go deep. They I, did I, go deep. Uh, <laughs> there's literally no one in the world I do not hate right now. Um, <laughs> look, look, it's, it's as inevitable as the tides. <laughs> It's okay. If you just keep treading water, eventually we'll get to the end. Uh, huh? <laughs> I, 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 I hate everything about that. Okay. Uh, that, back to the product at hand. Um, I, I, was, I was impressed with the first one. I thought it was good. Yeah. I thought it was, a, it was a setting that had a reason to exist. Like there are so many settings that are essentially a rehash of we made we remade medieval Europe. Right. And some of them are good. I mean, I like Midgard. I play in Midgard. I've run games in Midgard. But it is also here's medieval Europe again. Um, and then they added on like, well, we'll have Africa and we'll have Russia and, you know, but it, 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 it they definitely went to real-world analogs brought in. And there are so many settings that are that. Uh, And you're like, well, why are you making something? You know, why are you making a setting? Why am I not using Forgotten Realms or Eberron or Greyhawk or Dragonlance or any of the dozen other things that kind of feel the same a little bit? Like, I like Eberron. They all have their own unique things. Don't don't hate me. (laughs) But... Uh, like they all have some commonality that makes them, you know, you're basically choosing which flavor you like, but they're all kind of, it's like, I'm getting my burger. I may be getting it from my favorite restaurant, but it's still a burger. Right. And this was seafood. Uh, this was <laughs> this, uh, well done, Jeremiah. <laughs> um, that like it is a setting that has, a, a hook that makes it feel different okay. from top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of this setting that that I see echoing things in other settings. You know, the the the, the great god war that destroyed the 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 world or whatever is a little bit the cataclysm and a little bit Exandria and you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say that that part felt very cringe to me, but without as much meta plot to it, but yes, sure. but well, and, and, and the, the swashbuckleriness reminds me of a little bit of uh, some of the stuff that green Ronin has done. Uh, was a blue rose or even some of the, the, the Freeport stuff or whatever, you know? So, so it's not an entirely unique thing, but that almost, I don't know. I don't know that I felt like the setting was telling me a unique story, but I feel like the details in the setting Mm -hmm. seed so many different potentially unique story points that I hadn't really thought about incorporating into games before that it creates a unique opportunity for a campaign. Well, 
those other things are usually like, well, here's a city, sure. which is on the coast of a continent. Right. Whereas here it is, it's all ocean, guys. Right. You are, you are in, you, you, you have islands and you have ships. Mm-hmm. And that is your setting. And it's the closest analog I can draw to it isn't another game setting. It's Pirates of Dark Water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Or yeah, uh, it, uh, isn't isn't One Piece kind of on a, in a world like that? Maybe I, I don't know One I'm, Piece. I'm, as I'm well only as vaguely well. aware of One Piece, but I'm I'm uh, I am vaguely aware of it. So. I've I've only watched a hundred episodes of that. Right. <laughs> and so, like a tenth. Right. <laughs> that is my understanding is that it is like that. I also think of uh, Waterworld, although that's way more like water surface centric than this is. Well, a little bit more Seas of Adari than mm-hmm. under the Seas of Adari. Or uh, uh, the the water planet in Star Wars. Well, I mean, I would, me, I would say, though, it's not quite like that no. because there are land masses that are good sized islands it's just there isn't like a europe sized continent there are islands sure. that are big enough for small you know principalities on well, all of these different islands and and, may, and maybe it's been a minute since i've even looked at the the, the first book uh caesar vidari but it my recollection of caesar vidari is that it fit, felt more Western European swashbucklery sort of uh, colonial era uh, inspired, whereas under the Seas of Adari felt more like it's drawing some inspiration from like Pacific cultures, um, well, which is also interesting because I don't know that there's there was anybody in the staff who worked on it that has that that cultural uh, pers- perspective to really uh, speak to that and, and sort of culturally check it and make sure it's all done well but it's also fantasy enough that that i don't see a direct analog it's not like it's not like the forgotten realms where you can say well well here's this this realm and it's very clearly just sort of egypt but fantasy or here's this area which is clearly just france but fantasy or whatever right it's not it's not that on the nose Um, you had to go the the egypt but fantasy route because that was one of my favorite stories that Ed Greenwood apparently at one point when someone asked him about Mulhrand, he said it's sort of like um, you know how Stygia was a precursor to Egypt in the Conan stories, and that got translated into it is exactly like is, Egypt. Oh, I mean, it is it is canon basically that people came through a portal from actual Egypt and then settled in Mulhrand, yeah, and, uh, and, and brought their gods with them. They brought their Let gods me, with them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And all that came from, it's kind of like Stygia in Conan books. <laughs> I, 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 I think the, the point, though, is that it's it's a setting that in another book, another setting book, would just be a small portion of the world. Sure. And instead, they, they, they decided, no, we're going to take this, this whole thing and make that the world. And... Yeah, it, it works. And and there's still a lot of uh, European influence in, under the seas as well, because there's, I mean, there's whole um, uh, playable races that are clearly Fae-inspired, uh, 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 you know, the, the Selkies and, and that kind of stuff, right? So so there's all well, kinds I, of stuff you can pull from that's clearly European culturally based. And, um, and a lot of, like, the siren thing kind of comes from, like, you know, well, I would say Greek yes. mythology, but also just about every seafaring culture, you know, 
with things of that nature. The thing that it made me think of more than any real world culture was there's a lot of um, Disney's Atlantis in this. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I can see that. I, I, I was thinking similarly uh, along the lines of the mythology they built up around Aquaman and DC. Oh, Comics, yeah. Okay. Uh, where like they yeah. have multiple nations under the sea mm-hmm. and they're threats in the deep trenches and stuff like that that felt very much uh, very oh similar. yeah oh well and and i mean they basically outright said that that godzilla's down there uh, mm-hmm. if, if you go deep enough <laughs> like there's well, a whole section but, of the, the what is it the, the dreamers in the deep which which they always point out the dreamers in the deep or in some other cultures would be called kaiju you know <laughs> so. well and i mean that's actually a thing i I'm almost certain it's come up in Aquaman too, but that's a thing that has come up uh-huh. in like the the Namor things in Marvel, where uh-huh. Namor has these weapons of mass destruction that are just kaiju that he leaves asleep. <laughs> and, and there was a point in time when he tried to wake one up because he was going to just smash everybody on the surface with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because Jack Kirby liked to draw big monsters, but yes, uh, <laughs> let's let's that's neither here nor there. No, I the, the under the seas in particular feel like. Like I said, the, the previous one felt interesting that it was doing something that needed to exist rather than just another thing that we've seen done iterations of a dozen times. Uh, Under the Seas is completely like a, this is not a place that we spend a lot of time in D&D at all. Yep. Um, it's alien. I mean, to a certain extent. Like, and... Um, they they keep it on a sort of fairy tale mythology level so that it's not feeling that alien but like underwater is it's a very weird place but at the same time it's it's very clear and and we kind of hinted at this with the kaiju talk it's very clear that the deeper you go like under the seas describes it as as it it gets more and more weird and alien and threatening mm-hmm. and that's where like the well, demons come from but also the aberrations and then the kaiju are down there and the leviathans and everything else jared one of the things that i love about how they set this up is it's it is taking a lot of D isms and reimagining them for the underseas and one of the things i was going to say about that is there are zones to how this works and there is the sunlit seas the twilight depths and the midnight depths and that is almost getting into the same kind of paradigm that you have in D&D with surface you know, nations where you get into the Underdark. Like, people in the Sunlit Seas think of the, the Midnight Depths the same way that, you know, people on, you know, on the surface would think of the Underdark, where it's like, that's where the things that eat your brains come from. <laughs> well, but, but, but even, but it's even, it's a little bit different, of course, because it's, it's underwater, right? Mm-hmm. Where, whereas... If there's a big threat in the Underdark, it's something weird and alien that's going to eat your brain. If there's a big threat in the the Midnight Depths, it's a giant creature that's going to come up from the depths <laughs> and eat your continent. You know, <laughs> so, so so you're not you're. I, I get the same feeling. You're mm-hmm. right, um, and it's also like I said, it's also where where the demons come come bubbling up, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. and, um, all kinds of weird nastiness comes from the depths. Um, I, re- I really like that all of the the locations, and this is something that was true of the original book too, 
but all the locations do what I want a setting book to do. And that is at the end of a section describing a location, there's a thing saying, here are your allies and adversaries. So here are some people that you're going to be able to talk to. Here are the primary locations. So if you forget, you know, what city should they be going to? That's all summarized there. And then there's sample adventures. Yeah. And too many source books over the course of my lifetime, which I've read so many of, it is like a textbook and it will explain a country, but it does not reframe that as you are a GM running this. This is what we think you will use this for. It just presents it like a textbook and you'll sit there at the end and maybe go, I don't know what I'm doing with this place. Yeah, no, th there are, I have read setting books where I get to the end. I'm like, okay, I have a meta arc. There is a campaign in my, in my brain from reading this, that, that is sort of woven that I saw woven through the whole thing, whether intentionally or not. Um, that I can tell a story from that. The, the third edition Forgotten Realms campaign setting did that for me. I, mm -hmm. built, I, I read the whole thing cover to cover and then had a campaign in my head ready to go and then played it. Um, in fact, I think Jeremiah was in that campaign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Seas of Adari um, didn't do that for me, but instead it inspired a million little adventures throughout the entire thing. Like we could go to this place and then these are the things that can happen. And then you could go, go to that place uh, under the seas um, does that as well. And they, and, and, it, and like you said, it has this section adventures and it's just like a bullet point of like two to five little one paragraph descriptions of the kinds of stories or kind of, kind of adventures you could have there. And I think that's really well done. I felt like, and again, it's been a minute since I've read uh, Seas of Vidari, um, but it felt to me like Seas of Vidari did that, but then did it more also within the description of like the locations of the people. I remember reading Seas of Vidari and and pulling out stories that weren't described in those in the that end of section mm. uh, bullet points that made me think, oh, there's a cool story I can tell there, or that person's got a secret I can tweak and play with. Uh, Under the Seas did that did that some, but it, I, my feeling is that it did it less than Seas did. Um, but but there's still lots of stories to tell, so. Yeah, and, like, the environment is it's fascinating, yeah. right? Like, if you make it into the midnight depths, it's always darkness. Right. There's there's no daylight. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like there's no day night cycle down that deep. You, it's always dark. And by darkness, we mean like the full effect of what darkness does. Uh, everything is obscured. Everything is uh, hard to see. Uh, if you're a character from the surface who's got a thing that lets you breathe, let's hope that that thing doesn't fail. Because <laughs> you're never making it to the surface. Well, and at that point, you don't. It's not just about breathing. It's about also withstanding the cold. It's about um, crunch. <laughs> it's about the the pressure, right? Um, yeah. So current but, events notwithstanding. Yeah. Um. Jeremiah was talking about how you felt like Seas was a setting that, you know, couldn't really, telling a story that couldn't really be to told in other settings. Um, I find that that's absolutely true in Under the Seas. And I think Jer uh, Jared had mentioned this as well. Seas of Adari 
I have recommended to people many, many times online. Every now and then I'll have people come to me and say, hey, I really need a really good setting, a really good setting book that, that helps inspire stories and can do all these different things. Who's got some ideas? And you'll get a lot of the sort of typical things from people, a lot of the the, the Watsi published stuff or, you know, whatever. And then uh, I'll, I'll jump in and be like, you know, it sounds to me like you're describing Season of Adara. You should really check that out um, <laughs> because it fits it really well and it's really well written. Um, that said... The concept of Seas of Adari doesn't feel like a setting that I couldn't have imagined on my own by kludging together a bunch of ideas from other settings that I've that I've seen and played. Um, it, it's it could almost be a really really well written homebrew setting, uh, which I mean every setting is is basically a, a, a homebrew setting at some point, right? Um, whereas under the Seas of Adari is really filling a niche that I would not have even, that is not a project I would have even thought to start trying to, to build. Uh, I was going to say, I don't even think three, five really didn't have, or third edition didn't really have an undersea setting. They might have sections talking about undersea because even storm rack was more about sailing, not necessarily being under the water. Um, I think the last time I remember a source book that was actually about, Underwater was like um, Season of the Fallen Stars and uh, Second Edition, um, which was basically just you know showing like here's the middle of the Forgotten Realms and here's all the things that live in the Sea of the Fallen Stars, which is interesting because then the, when there was actually novels of things coming out of the oceans, it was on the Sword Coast. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I, I, I think that the yeah. It, it's hard for you to think of an index media that would direct people to this. Like with Seas of Odari, uh, I could easily say, did you like Pirates of Darkwater? Play Seas of Vodari. Because you, you'll, you'll find right. a lot of the same stuff here. Just go for that. Uh, this, like I, I had to go for an obscure comic book uh Thing that you have to know that comic or it doesn't make sense well yeah i was gonna say if you wanted to tell someone like what's my inspiration for this um watch the momoa aquaman movie and watch disney's uh atlantis and that's pretty much the the main things i can think of that have the same kind of touchstones well, to and them at, and at the same time and i was just making a similar point to somebody in the chat uh, commander pulsar mentioned that it kind of our previous description i think felt a little bit blades in the darkish he called it fins in the dark <laughs> um, uh, I think because we're talking about the, the threats from the depths and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but, it, and, and I mentioned, mentioned to him, well, kind of, you could definitely play it that way, but it's way more D and D. And I, think yeah. They, oh they, yeah. They make a point early in the, in the, in under the seas that like, if there is something in D and D and you want to play with it in the setting, mm -hmm. like the setting can take it. You know, yeah. br bring it in, uh, include it, uh, and you can. So, so whatever it is that your D and D is, it can kind of like it's not a kitchen sink setting, but it can kind of support your kitchen sink if it needs to. Yeah, and I also like it is very D and D, but it's also enough nuance that it is a little bit different. Like, for example, you don't have like a kingdom of mer people. You have multiple kingdoms of mer people, and some of them are kind of neutral and trade oriented, and some of them are very isolationist, and some of them are more militaristic. You have more than one culture of. Um, I'm going to say this, and I swear this is how I pronounce it. Sohagen, 
Um, and <laughs> you have like one culture of them that they're probably dangerous if you run across them, but they don't go out of their way to mess with anyone else. And then you have another culture of them that goes out of their way to mess with right. you. That, that is straight up going to war with other countries. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, and I would, I would say that blades in the dark tends to be the, the games based on it tend to be very focused on a, an experience they want you to have. Yeah. No, Whereas, this is definitely epic fantasy. Yeah. This is, this is much more of a, here's a playground for you to tell whatever kind of stories in that playground you want to play. Uh, Nothing wrong with either approach. They are just different priorities mm-hmm. in game design. Now, uh, just as an aside, I want to start running Sahu again. Uh, sorry, that's how I pronounce it. Sahu again. <laughs> what, what did you say, Jared? Sahuagan. And, and Ish, you said? Sahu again. And I say Sahuagan. I, I could be wrong. I'm just saying that's how I've said it for like a long time. So I, uh, I, never, knew, I never knew how to pronounce it. And then I listened to an actual play podcast way back when those were new things uh, where they were a major threat. And that's how they said it. And so that's how I learned to say it. <laughs> um, but anyways, I'm going to start running them as sea Klingons. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, I call them fish people. But there's a lot of fish people, man. You're going to have to be more more specific in this area. So, so Quotoa, right? (laughs) Or the Tiburon, the the shark fish people, right? I I, I love Tiburons, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Tiburons are great. Um, I I love all of the race options that they put Mm -hmm. in. They're all really in-depth and give you interesting stories. Um, The... uh, the ancients mm-hmm. is interesting to me because uh-huh. um, they're very much tied to the mythology of the world. Yes, like they 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 are a dying species that were created by the gods uh, that are now on the waning side. Uh, and I I found it fascinating that the example names they gave sound like angels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it occurs mm-hmm. to me as you describe them. It occurs to me that there's a little bit of Tolkien-like elves to the ancients, and also a little bit of like D and D elves, because you have the dark elves and the light elves, but but in a setting where elves also exist that are completely separate <laughs> things, right? But there's that you're right. There's that Tolkien-esque like they're they're an ancient race that are kind of like angels, and they're they're fading from existence. And I mean the male names that they have listed are like the first two are embryo and asriel (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah you you get that this is an angel name right (laughs) i think think they do yeah (laughs) cadriel you're, you're naming named angels here. What's going on? I, I, I'm I'm just gonna say we we know Brandis was involved. That they, they knew. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, we are talking about a, a guy who wanted to put angels in his LARP. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, which I helped with. To be fair, that tracks though. Yeah, no, the ancients are like, and one of the things about the races that really speak to me other than the Tiburon, which are really cool. They're like shark people. Uh, and by shark people, they're not like Sahawagan or however we want to say it. Shark people. Um, they're shark people that look like sharks, but with arms. 
Yeah. (laughs) No legs, though. Uh, And so they're like one of, if not the only of the new races that aren't actually amphibious. Um, Mm -hmm. Because one of the things, like I I mentioned at the beginning that when I originally read Caesar Vidari, I'm like, oh, this is really, really well done. I'm just not in a place where I want to play that story right now. Um, reading under the Caesar Vidari has now put me in a place of, oh, no, I kind of want to go back and play it in Caesar Vidari. Um, but I kind of want to find some way to make it an amphibious campaign, which I think there's some allusion to within this book on, on places yeah. where you can do that, where you can be both do, do surface dwelling stories and uh, under the sea dwelling stories. I think it's also highlighted in the the sample adventure at the end mm-hmm. of the book. Uh, the fact that it starts at level three um, implies that, that the players and the characters have done some other things before they played this adventure. Um, and and there, there's definitely some um, um, like borderline species, like species that have ties to both to both worlds. Like you have the aquatic dwarves, but they specifically are part right. of the dwarven nation that exists on land. And same thing is true of the aquatic dragonborn. They have their own nation and they are effectively part of that, but they are also aquatic. And, you know, like both of those can go back and forth between, between that. The sirens can, you know, go back and forth right. between, you know, land the, and sea. The and... mermaids do the aerial thing where they, where they get legs when they walk <laughs> up onto the land and then uh, they go turn back into fins when they go underwater. Um, uh, it, speaking of dragon... Yeah. This, this I love, I love the sulkies too. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're, they're great. Uh, I always, anytime there's a race that has traits built on an item, always leaves me a little bit wary, uh, because one of the things that makes racial abilities and racial sort of identities a thing to me is that they can't be taken away. But if it's based on an item, then it can, uh, and so I, that always makes me hesitate a little bit but i also get like it's only one time and it's a for a very specific reason because it's built into the mythology of of mm. what they are I, I actually played in a different game where there was a bad guy who was a sulky who was forced to be a bad guy because somebody caught her her skin and was holding it yeah. and yeah and, and, and i was like that that's compelling story right there uh-huh so yeah, I can. But but see. but I'd be pissed if the, I mean if if I'm playing a a PC who's a selkie and and that's happening and it's happening every single time somebody plays a selkie, it's <laughs> it's not okay. Well, yeah, you you don't <laughs> want to do it every single time any more than you want to every single time have the elves get the ears clipped or well or or even like if you're playing in a superhero campaign and somebody has their uh, their armor, you don't. Yank that away from them all the time. That's part of who they are. Yeah. Um, one speaking of races, though, somebody mentioned the Dragonborn and how there's you know there's mm-hmm. just a, a, an a, an aquatic variance of Dragonborn and what have you. One of the things I noticed, and I forget if this was the case with Dragonborn in Seas as well, um, but the art for the Dragonborn show them with tails. And that is a very specific 5e thing. The Dragonborn <laughs> don't have tails and half dragons do. Um, and, and it makes sense to me for aquatic Dragonborn because that's how they swim and navigate yeah. and whatever. But I was curious if anybody remembered if that is a Vodari thing where above the water, do they have tails? Are they depicted with tails as well? Or is it just I a can- weird under underwater thing? I cannot remember offhand. I, I, th- I think they're 
uh, presented in the same way uh, uh, Exandria presents them. Uh, like some have tails and some don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it, it quickly reaches a point of then what's the difference between a half dragon and a, and a dragonborn? Um, half dragons are more powerful. I suppose half it, dragon. Is half it, dragons are half dragon. I say, is, is it the same as the difference between a, a cambion and a tiefling? Because I can wrap my head around that. Yeah, a, a, a cambion is more powerful than a tiefling. It's not, in fact, a mortal race anymore. <laughs> well, unless it's not, because tieflings can be PCs and gain levels, and then they are clearly more powerful. But yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's the point of the difference, I, though. I generally it's, got a new point, yes. <laughs> so. I, if we get into that uh, territory, then we were like, why Why do we have go- goblins and kobolds? Because kobold <laughs> is literally a goblin. <laughs> but those well, two are interchangeable. In the, in they in just the different European cultures. They have different in, names. In the, the, same in the mythology, yes. <laughs> in in the game of D anD D, they're clearly very different things. Yeah, uh, be, because you needed one thing to be a half hit die, and then you need the next thing to be one minus one hit yeah, die. No, the, uh, <laughs> don't get me started. I can rant about that one for a while because there's like a half dozen dozen creatures that are essentially the same monster, oh, yeah. and you know some designers like, well, no, I want to make them di- a little different, so I'm going to just use this name for the same thing. Oh, sure. It drives me <laughs> mad. Well, I, you, I mean, I'm sure you can trace it back to the, to the early days of the game where they were, they, they, they had two different things and they needed to come up with a name and they figured they, they'd pull some inspiration from a, from a, a, a mythology that they didn't think anybody else would ever find out about. So, And also likely a mythology they thought they knew a lot more about than they actually did. Right. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I'm, I, so, Gary, Gary Gygax never imagined a world where people would be like, is this a kobold just being goblin? <laughs> I, I mean, if we, if you really want to get off track, Read that original, um, that original <laughs> deity and demigod section on the uh, Celtic gods, because that was like something someone half read in a library when they were falling asleep when they translated <laughs> that. Uh, uh, I mean, it's right up there with the cler- clerics can't use edged weapons because they're not allowed to make people bleed, so they can use a mace. I hate to what? break it to you guys. A mace will cause people yeah, to bleed. No, if I hit you with a, I hit you with and, a mace, you're going to bleed. <laughs> and I believe that all came from like one apocryphal like um, story from medieval times. It wasn't even a thing that was like knights or you know monks actually did this. It was like there's a story of this one monk that swore he wouldn't draw blood, so he only carried a mace. Oh. <sighs> But these are the stories that have now become part of the 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 mythology and the lore of what is D anD D. Exactly. So, hey, does anyone want to tell me how you pronounce the um, the half octopus people? Is that the, the, <laughs> Which one? It's, it's, uh, the because the there are two of them. Yeah, I was think the the Kalius. I'm I'm gonna I look was... it up before I try. I I think we've established <laughs> that you're bad at. Pronouncing names though. Casalius is, is how I would say it. Yeah, but see, then you're doing a hard C at the beginning and uh-huh. then a soft C in the middle. 
correct. <laughs> yeah, only English does stupid stuff like that. Uh, I, 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 w- I would say Casalius as well. <laughs> um, anyway, I like those. No, I think they're they're really interesting. Um, I like the, I mean, the color changing being sort of an at-will thing is nice. Like, mm-hmm. We can just, I feel like being pink today. And okay. Mm-hmm. I just really like the range of things they thought of to make into player character options in this. It's yeah, it is it is very it's extremely varied, and I like it because that has become much more of a thing in Five E where you don't present people with like four or five options and say these are the only things that can be player character heroes. Five E has definitely embraced a much wider range, and I like that they have carried that forward to envision what other kinds of you know seaborne heroes you could be embodying with these yeah the other other octopus race is grindylos mm-hmm. which are basically goblins with <laughs> goblin octopus people yes goblin yeah. octopus people and and those are based on on a mythology as i call right there there are grindylos in in folklore, I don't know that they are specifically oh. I don't know <laughs> described exactly in that manner. <laughs> yes, I, I, I believe love, they're aquatic. <laughs> I, I love that their uh, larva-like uh, state of their life, they are called Grindy Wiggles. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just catch that as well. That, that, that makes me happy. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, wasn't it... Uh, um, isn't the 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 things that live in the lake in Harry Potter aren't those Grindylows? Yeah, I think so. I think so or at least there are Grindylows in Harry Potter. I just like had it had the whole movie series in the background, and I remember hearing Grindylow at one point. Yeah. No, and one of the things that I think is it is a, a lesser explored area of since we're talking about all the races is the. Uh, um, I have to look at the the word here. Karakoans, the the crab people, um, uh-huh. which are interesting and described, and then they get like one like all these others have like multiple multiple like kingdoms or cities or whatever mm-hmm. that, that they dominate or or what have you. And then the Karakoans kind of feel like um, kind of feel like what another setting would do for like oh yeah. And then there's these like barbarian tribes that sort of roam around and, and, and do their own thing. And we mostly don't mess with them, but, but if, if, if one of the, the, the barbarians wanted to come in and, and, and join the civilization, this is how you could play one of these characters, you know, it, it, it is almost one of the, the sort of alien outsider type mm-hmm. things, almost like, like Thrykreen. And, you know, if you have that as a mm-hmm. player option, like this thing does not think like the rest of you, it's not built like the rest of you. But if you want that challenge, here it is. <laughs> I mean, you you always need to have Mongols, so <laughs> sure. Um, no, the 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 Korkans, uh, or Korkans, however you want to pronounce it, <laughs> uh, are uh, are are interesting for a lot of reasons um, because they are quite so alien. Like most of the other ones have some tie to a humanoid uh, you know version of themselves and these aren't mm-hmm. like they are just crab people <laughs> um like merfolk like yeah torso like 
even the Tiburon, while they got a shark head, the body yeah, there, of, uh, there's some humanoid stuff going on there, and and the these aren't, and it's <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but is it for the people who want the the more alien character? I guess. But I also like that for both the the Karakoans and the Grindylo and the Cicalias, um, the ones with all the tentacles and or multiple arms and legs and whatever. <laughs> there is a specific little sidebar for each one of them to head off that one player who's going to be like, no, 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 I have eight arms. I should totally be able to wield five weapons. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? Too bad. No. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I don't know that that mechanical thing that little sidebar that's there is like I don't know that it speaks to the story and the narrative of these characters it, it's all just there for balance reasons but it makes sense for that reason yeah but let's just not cross that bridge because it's a pain, <laughs> a pain to do um, well it, I mean it, it is there for the same reason that most of the core uh, player options that are big are not large, even though they are right. large. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although speak, uh, that that brings in the the idea of the sidebars. I really liked the use of sidebars in the book. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I, I found that every time there was a sidebar, that was like the most interesting thing on the page, and g- gave me the most ideas on the page of what to do with with the uh, the game and the setting. I think like previous editions of D and D have kind of felt they've kind of followed the same pattern that the people that created D did which is it is kind of speaking authoritatively and presenting a thing to you and letting you figure out how to use it now it doesn't mean there aren't products that you know like in a dmg that you know tell you this is how you gm or things like that but there is kind of almost this feeling like i'm presenting this to you you decipher what you're going to do with it and run with it and I really do like a lot more modern game design where you have sidebars where somebody says, hey, I know you're running a game. This is what we were thinking when we were running our games or why we designed this thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the things that I absolutely loved about 13th Age because I had no questions about why they did the things that they did because they explained the things that they did, why they did them. Yeah, and I know that um, Brandis and Sam uh, talk a lot and Sam has talked many times when we've discussed various adventures or products or whatever about how he wishes the sidebars were more useful and, and better mm-hmm. done. So there is a part of me that wonders if some of that conversation with Sam leaked into the back <laughs> of Brandis's mind and, and he made it a point to make sure the, the sidebars were, were uh, infinitely useful. <laughs> so it's, It should be said also, this is a sizable book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you're getting a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, it's like a 300 page book. Yeah, you're kind uh, of getting four mini books. You're getting a setting book, plus you're getting a a, a specific a setting specific player's handbook, and you're getting a setting specific uh, DMG and a setting specific um, uh, monster manual. Right, uh, and, and, and a 20 page yeah a 20 page adventure at the end. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it it and you know having the physical product, it is well put together. Mm-hmm. It's on par, maybe even a little bit better than a lot of the D and D books that I bought in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the like, spine doesn't bother me because it's misaligned, which I can't say for all of my uh, Watsi books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I th I think it's a uh, uh, now I'm working from the PDF, so I can't speak to the physical product, but I think it's a really well put together book. I do, I did catch, I I specifically remember three instances where I caught editing errors. Um, you know, not big things. Um, but uh, just little inconsistencies. Oh, okay. Well, it says here that this was a thing, but over here it says that it's actually two things. Okay, I just got to square that circle and figure out which one makes the most sense. Or there was one. Um, I'm gonna skip to the adventure at the end here. There was one instance where who's the patron in that adventure? Um, I believe it's pronounced Selena. Um, C e l a e n a. But there's one instance in the adventure where it's actually spelled Selena, like, you know, the, the, yeah. the American spelling of S-I-L-A-N-S or whatever. Yeah. Catwoman Cat snuck in there at some point. Right, right. There's, there's one instance where it's Selena with an S uh, and not the fantasy underwater version of Selena spelling. Uh, so, but so, so I can recall three instances of typos like that. And honestly... That's probably fewer instances of that kind of typo than I run into in a Watsi book because I run into the typos there too. <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a it's a big book. Yeah. Mm. And and some of the like one of the things I was particularly pleased with because I was interested to get to the how to run an adventure in in under the seas section and we mentioned that it's there um and there's a lot of it that's that's a lot of random tables that's going to be useful at my table when i'm playing the game it's not super fun to read random table charts right um and so and so there's a lot of it that you kind of don't pay too much attention to you skim through just to see how interesting they are whatever it's random encounters or different kinds of adventures that you run into in different kinds of locations and i find those things useful as a dm they're just not fun to read but there's one of the things one of the things that I did want to point out about the random encounters, and this is another thing that I appreciate, it is not random encounters like, you know, two, you run into 1D4 Tiburon, you know, right. three, you run it. It's actually saying you run into these things in this circumstance. Right. So you kind of have a starting point for why these things are where they're at. It's not a deep story, but it's also not just these things are waiting static right. to show up. Because and encounters, you that, encounters that feel random are kind of lame. Yeah. But random encounters that feel like they're part of the world. Yeah, um, like something's going on that you stumble across it. It's right. not just, you know, and I, I do like that about the random encounters. The other thing that I thought was neat was they do take a lot of things that exist for surface D&D and translate it in the GM section. Like there is specifically an undersea chase section. Yes. Just like there is the urban and the wilderness chase section in the DMG. And I like that too. Yeah, no, there, there was a lot of like, I was really getting pumped to get to that section uh, by the time I got there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got there and at first it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, vision is different and describe things in this way, but I've kind of already got that from reading all the setting sections and, and what have you. But then there were other parts of it that were still like, oh yeah, no, it's really important. And I, and I wanted to f think about and figure out how they would talk about, okay, but how do you run combat? How do I put an undersea combat <laughs> on my map? Um, how do I deal with the fact that there could be enemies above and below how every single 
monster and character in this setting in every encounter is basically both a flying and burrowing creature. <laughs> um, you know, and how do I, how do I deal with that? Uh, and, and there wasn't any advice there that really blew my mind, but I kind of wasn't expecting there to be, but there mm-hmm. is some good thoughtful sort of ways to think about and approach those things. Yeah. If nothing else, it reminds you to not just throw some tokens on a map and not think that they can go up and down right. as well as, front and back and side to side right yeah but, but it, it is a it is a campaign that if i went underwater i would suddenly be like you know what let's lean more on theater of the mind right now <laughs> for, for the whole underwater section i think it's just going to be easier i i among the various uh uh sidebars i think one of the ones i like is a couple of times they address how to handle people who are not aquatic pcs being in this environment um and you know they give you a bunch of options and i like that i think that's that's a good thing for them to have done yep and i and i and i also like because one of the some of the options are well they should probably be this class (laughs) no or (laughs) or they should be one of these races that's amphibious or whatever but if they really don't want to be if they really want to play that that gnome artificer or whatever but they don't want to make a scuba suit to run around in all the time um here's some magic items that are sort of uncommon fairly basic magic items i noticed very explicitly they made those items ones that you didn't need to attune to so it wasn't going to change the game balance uh significantly yeah. and and they explicitly said like if you want to start from level one and go aquatic that's f- and these char- these players want to play non-aquatic uh, uh characters you can do that you might want to throw a ring of, of water breathing at them. Uh, but then don't forget to also give a little goodie to the other players because starting off those characters with magic items um, doesn't feel fair. You know, I was, tr- I was trying to remember was the, um, was the adventure in seas of Badari uh, first or third. I don't know, but it'd be great if it was, cause they could just flow into each other. Right. You just need to make sure you had people that were equipped to start doing underwater event- adventuring. But yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when it comes to the adventure itself, that was one of the things I wanted to point out. I loved the original season of Adari, but I was a little critical of the opening adventure because it is, you get it, you basically, you find out there may be treasure on this island, you sail to this island, and you fight pirate skeletons, and you get this treasure. You know, that's not spoiling too much because there's, you know, ins and outs of it. But it felt like the kind of adventure you could have in any setting. It didn't really touch on some of the unique things in this setting because you could sail to an island anywhere and look for treasure. I mean, that's 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 the whole Isle of Dread. But what I loved about the adventure in this one is this is absolutely an adventure designed for this setting. And it uses yeah. this setting's elements really well and well, integrates them. Kind of. Like on, on one, I mean, on one hand, you're right. Absolutely. The, the, this adventure is written in such a way that it works for this setting and it plays into the, the idea of the, the mm-hmm. ruins and, and uh, the way magic works and, and the aquaticness and, and all those different elements they built into the, to the setting. On the other hand, the big threat are these psionic fish that build big machines. Yes. Which is a thing that's interesting, but also not mentioned anywhere else in the setting like that there's this whole group oh, no. of, of well no there's that, they're in the um they're in the uh beast area in the original sure but, but i assume they were put oh in the original yeah oh, oh yeah okay. they were in the original one too yeah yeah now 
they don't explain their origins in the original ones. It's right. just this weird thing where you might run into a fish that's piloting a mech. Yeah. And <laughs> I kind of love that idea. about them. And I'm not yeah. mad at him for the idea, but but it, it it didn't feel like it felt like if that was a thing that was a threat that's that's worthy of the bestiary, then then yeah, no, I felt, I kind of felt like the setting. I kind of felt like this was a payoff to them showing up in, in the, the uh, in, in the original book because this wasn't just you know here is a random fish driving a mech or in a submarine. Okay. This is now this is why they are the way they are and this is why they do the things they do. See, and I, it gave I'd you more of that, that background. Entirely. I'd forgotten mm-hmm. that entirely. So that that pay, that does pay off in, in interesting ways. I could not forget a fish driving a mech. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a water-filled Mac walking around yes. on land, so the fish can still swim. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, they a couple of points uh, point out that the ancients before the the you know eternal war were using both tech and magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and they have some vehicles in here too that are more technological vehicles than they are magic. And yeah, the the psychic fish and mechs are in the bestiary <laughs> for this book too. Yeah, uh, the Kalidu. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, sure. Uh, yeah, they, they <laughs> the Kalidu have a Kalidu walker and a Kalidu uh, stinger, which are basically mechs that they pilot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny yeah, I... concept. Oh, I know. I, I love them, and I like them even more when they do a little bit more of the backstory in this adventure, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I love that in this adventure that they actually... Here's a thing that only exists in this setting. Those aren't something that's pulled out of somewhere else in D&D, and then they further detail their background, and it's tied to the history of the setting, which is given in the other parts of the book, too. So, I really like that. Um, I was going to say this too, since they, we mentioned the vehicles and, and how they have like the tech vehicles. I like that there is this weird material that powers them. So it's not just a matter of, oh, we have found something high tech. So now it works for us. There is still that feeling of rarity to it because you still have to find those particular crystals in order to you know the use ice. these items. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about that is the ancient magic sorcerer subclass Mm. i love this this trope in things where it's basically like they can touch certain technology and it comes alive for them because you know they are attuned to the technology and they get their own little you know um robo friend that's basically you know something that they found that they could activate a little a little floating like sphere or polyhedron (laughs) or whatever that, that acts as their familiar i i think i would absolutely adore using a deep angler in a game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, the nightmares I would get. <laughs> yeah. Also, there are otters, and I love otters. I know that's very simple, but I love otters, and there's otters in there, so, uh, you know, uh, two thumbs yeah. up. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> oh, have you, have you uh, listened to Sam's uh, actual play? The, the DM uh, brief? I am not caught up on it. I but, know but there's, he has, he has, there's a whole playable race of otter people. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I, I don't know that he's published the stats for those, but, but that's the thing that he's created. So, okay. Anybody have any last thoughts? We've been talking for a long time on this, uh, on this book. So any last thoughts people want to share? Uh, 
both Cities of Eldari and uh, this uh, have been things where it's uh, I want to use them. Yeah. Um, like the 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 hard point for me, and I th- this is a problem with the D and D market in general, right? Is convincing people to use uh, third party settings. Um, you know, they they like what's familiar. They've seen all all of the stuff. Uh, the only uh, only two that I can think of that have had some success is Alexandria, for obvious reasons. Critical Role is huge, uh, and um, and maybe a little bit of Midgard. But I, I run into the same pressure back pressure when I'm trying to run Midgard too. Um, and that's a shame because there's a lot of really creative work that went into this. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would get something out of playing in this setting. Well, and part of the trick is, um, I, I think there are many groups like my own where we have become very reliant on D&D Beyond for our character management and, and even encounter management and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and third-party products aren't in there. Um, the nice thing about the Vidari books is that there's a lot of good material there, but it's not coming out constantly, right? Cobalt Press puts out a lot, has put out a lot of Midgard stuff. If I wanted to put all of the Midgard stuff that they've published into D&D Beyond uh, through the homebrew setup or whatever, um, that would be a full-time job for several months, um, if I want to put the Caesar Vidari stuff in, I can kind of do that a little bit easier. Like it'll take some time and, and there may be some, I need to just, I'm not going to bother putting in this monster unless I, unless or until I'm going to use this monster. Um, but there's only two books and it's been years in between. So there's a little bit more breathing room to really absorb and play around with and, and experience the things that, that have come out. I like the pacing, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I like that we're getting more options. I'm, I like that Caesar Vidari has all of these stories and there's hints about things under the waves. And now we have the things under the waves, but I don't, so I'm, so I'm, I'm getting the questions answered. I'm getting more options. I'm getting more stories to, that I can tell presented to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not overwhelming, you know? Yeah, it is, and it's a great setup and payoff. There, There is a good balance between the setup and payoff between the books and within the books. Yeah. So now I got to go back and read C's because I've been almost exclusively for the last at least five years now been running uh, more than that, probably six or seven years now, I've been running published adventures. Now I've been mashing them up and... and tweaking them and homebrewing them and a, a little bit here and there. But now I've the, this reading, this has gotten me inspired to be like, you know what, let's, let's just make it up as we go. Like I need to figure out sort of what a meta, what the meta arc is and who the big bad is and what they're trying to do. So I can build some consistency and some foreshadowing. Uh, Cause that's the kind of story I like to tell. But other than that, like, I don't know, let's just, let's just jump into Vodari and there's so many hooks and ideas mm. and, and whatever that in any given setting i've got three or four different adventures and then i can just sort of build from there based on what the players show interest in uh or the connections they make or where they decide to go next or whatever you know i i, I will say that i have 
largely moved to World 20 for most of my games because I, I yeah. do use third-party products. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, our, our, yeah, our game is uh, in Midgard, and I have all of the Kobold Press stuff that Roll20 yeah. has in there, and that makes it a lot easier to use those. Uh, with that said, uh, Sean and company, if you're listening to this, if you put this stuff on Roll20, I will buy it, and I'm not the only one. <laughs> Oh, I've been I've been waiting to buy this in Roll Twenty. I do think some of the problem, and I don't think that it's a problem with wanting to get it on to VTTs because the original um, Seas of Adari is available on Fantasy Grounds. I think the problem is finding someone to do the conversion work when there are so many people hiring people to do conversion work for Roll Twenty. Because I don't think that is a, I don't think that is an unlimited pool of people from which to draw from. It isn't. Well, <laughs> they should reach out to some of the people in this panel because uh, <laughs> I know some some folks here with a lot of uh, roll twenty experience. Ish taught yeah, me how to use roll twenty. My my, ca- my campaign wouldn't have survived. My gaming group wouldn't have survived <laughs> the pandemic if it wasn't for him. So I had one weird thing I wanted to throw out about this book that I really liked that isn't even about the setting, but it's about the utility of this overall. And that is the school of bloodbinding is like my favorite, like, Mm. you know, blood magic is a creepy thing that is thematic to so much fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I like this subclass more than any other blood related uh, you know, magic subclass that I have seen. I, there are some in, you know, the Exandria books. There's some in Cobalt Press. I like how this one works because it is literally, you are collecting blood from certain things and you are expending that blood to power certain things and you're collecting more blood. And it feels like you're actually someone that is utilizing blood and it's not just substituting, you take X number of hit points in order to do this thing, mm. which is almost too reductive for me. And on top of that, the NPC that they have that is a bloodbinder is a great option if you want to have an NPC villain that is using blood magic and it's right there in the bestiary. And none of that has to do with, you know, other than the fact that it is a type of magic in the setting, that's not specific to the setting. That's just because there are so well, many good player character options in it. And that, and that is, if anything, my, my only critique of that subclass is that it's like one of the only uh, class builds that are presented that's not that doesn't feel super connected to the setting, you know, mm-hmm. um, which also maybe makes it more useful uh, for people, <laughs> who, like you mentioned, that you could take it and, and go other places with it. So, all right. Any other last thoughts? Uh, I did just want to uh, point out the artwork, which I thought was amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like very consistent. Um, I do. Um, I do dislike third-party products where you see like either what is clearly the same character or the same kind of creature, and they look super different. Right. There was no, none of that. Not that that happens terribly often, but that's just a thing I noticed. Yeah. But um, another thing too is that it's worth, uh, that it's worth noting that the artwork is a little bit almost um, almost comic booky, cartoony. Yeah. Uh, in appearance, but it is very consistent, and it and it's good art it's just uh not what you're used to seeing in in Razi published books you know yeah um the other thing i was going to point out is that there wasn't any like exploitative artwork that i could tell and you could mm-hmm. you you see that a lot in like underwater settings it's like oh it's going to be all bikinis and all this stuff mm-hmm. but um 
like there, the, the you know, you you look at like a cobalt press bestiary, and there's like at least five. Like, oh, it's a seductive water lady who's going to drown you. Uh, and there was none of that here either. So I thought that that was cool. I mean, it just seemed like it was a very inclusive book that um, did not like decide I, to just go that direction. I had that conversation with Wolfgang uh, back when the first Tome of Beast came out. <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, there's like three oh, ones in, water ones in, there, yeah. in here. What, what is going on? He's like, well, we had all these different backers and they all pitched things and, and there's just so much. I guess it slipped through the cracks. Oops. <laughs> so. Yeah. There are three illustrators. Uh, listed mm-hmm. in the book, uh, Miriam Trejo, uh, Westland Vast, and uh, Dave Jamiquio. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and uh, and and uh, Dave also did the layout typesetting, so that's probably why the art is so consistent. And 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 stylistically similar but, throughout. But the even book. then, three artists. You don't see three different styles. Mm-hmm. You see a pretty consistent style. So, so kudos to those artists being able to find sort of a, a visual bible that they could all work to. Yeah, and the other thing that I really like that I missed from previous editions is they don't. I don't think they go through and name them in this, but they repeat certain characters mm-hmm. in different images. Like if you see like a person that is like their sample of one of the subclasses that person shows up in other art. It's not just, you know, every piece of art is completely new and unrelated. And I kind of miss having those iconic characters that are a through line through the mm-hmm. book. Although, yeah. someti- although sometimes they recycle the same piece of artwork in multiple places in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a small publisher like this, I kind of don't begrudge them that. So. Yeah. I, 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 I like the sort of, this is the iconically that the, this uh, particular Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ethnicity and so on. I, I think that works, um, and uh, it looks good. It looks like they're having adventures. Like you look, you see characters that are in the book as examples of this class or this race mm-hmm. on the cover having an adventure, and it's the same, recognizably the same visual character, mm-hmm. which is nice. Yep. And even and for all we know, there are characters that show up way more than that because there's uh, the color changing octopus people, and <laughs> as well as other characters who can just shape change at will. So, <laughs> all right, I think unless somebody stops me, I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. All right. I do want to say thanks to our wonderful panel of guests here. So, Jared. If people want to reach out and say thanks or, or find out what you're doing on the internet, where should they go? Um, first, you can find a lot of my reviews on Gnome Stew, which is also just an awesome site to go to in general. You can find my personal reviews at whatdoiknowjr.com, which is my own personal blog. And also, I am doing a podcast with my friend Ange, and that is Thacko with Advantage. And we basically talk about 5e mainly, but we are both have been playing long enough that we also digress into a bunch of stuff that we remember from playing for decades. I, so I, I don't know if I can endorse it. Cause you say Thacko. I'm a Thacko person. <laughs> so Hagen. <laughs> it's Mel Alvarez. Where can people go if they want to say thanks to you or, or check out what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, I guess X now, uh, or Twitch, uh, as open wizard King on both. Um, I can be found on Drive Through RPG under my uh, actual name, Ismael Alvarez. 
And uh, I am uh, starting a podcast of a Savage Worlds Rifts campaign called Two Dimensional. That's T-O-O Dimensional. Uh, but that's it. Right on, right on. Yeah, see, I when I was setting up the call today, I was trying to remember, okay, well, um, Ismail, no, he's not showing up that way. Elven Wizard King, he's not showing up that way. Okay, what? Well, I know he's got three names. What's the third one? It took me a while to come up with Lorathorn, your your disc, which is what you use for Discord. But I got there eventually. Uh, Jeremiah McCoy, where can people go to to see you? I mean, you're more famous than I am at this point, so, so uh, I'm certain. I'm certain each of your TikTok videos gets way more viewers than we get listeners, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm on TikTok as basics of the game, um, where I talk about D and D and other role-playing games and other random geeky things. Uh, I am on Mastodon as, uh, basics of the game. I'm on Twitch as basics of the game. Uh, I am still until it, manages to circle the drain on Twitter. I refuse to use the stupid new name uh, as uh, <laughs> Tech Noir. And I do have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com, that I need to update more often. All right. I also want to thank everybody who supports the show by being patrons uh, over at patreon.com slash the tome show for as little as a dollar a month you basically help me pay the bills that keep the, the the show going and occasionally it means that i can pick up various review products and that kind of stuff and we can we can check things out like that uh if you want to get in contact with the show you can email the tome show at gmail.com you can find me on the site that was once named twitter <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> on at Squatch S-Q-U-A-C-H the show is at The Tome Show um, you know I'm around on some other social medias these days as well I've been lurking around a lot on threads I guess I don't know that's a thing um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, blue I'm on, sky I'm on Mastodon as well I don't know look around on shortwave radio uh... <laughs> honestly if you find yourself in northern indiana just swing by and that's probably the best place to go. I, i'm in chattanooga you don't want to swing by my house no. there's still blood on the door from the last oh. guy it's not great Jeremiah good for the blood binders though <laughs> all right oh and uh and the discord uh all of us are on the tome shows discord it's a it's a wonderful little discord uh and by little i mean it, it it's just big enough that there's really good conversations kind of always happening but not so big that i feel like i can't jump in and, and join in whenever i want to it's, you know it's very easy to find the the signal to the noise ratio which is tough for me to do on some other uh servers that i've been in so all right that is episode 358 where we learned that fish are friends not food or, you know, sometimes you're their food. In this episode of... I'm also lost.